Welcome, welcome, welcome to Forgotten Feminists, everyone. Today is an incredibly special episode because we have the incredibly special Aisha Muhammad with us today. Now, I know every episode I tell you I love this woman, and I do love all of the Forgotten Feminist women, but Aisha is something else. Aisha is in my heart and soul, she is the clinical director of Free Hearts, Free Minds, and you know how important Free Hearts, Free Minds is to me. And um, it could not be anywhere near as successful as an organization if it didn't have the leadership of Aisha. So I completely am so appreciative to her on a professional level. Um, and on a personal level, she's just such an amazing badass. I'm sure you guys have seen her making her TikToks and on Instagram and on Twitter as well. And there are, you know, she's just a fearless female and there's nothing I love more in this world than a, than a fearless female. Um, and then we have a lot of personal things that, that uh, connect us as well. And so we're going to get into all of those conversations today. But to start off, I just want to say welcome, 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 Aisha. Thank you so much for joining us here today. It is an absolute pleasure. No, thank you. I was not expecting that welcome. So I'm feeling a little bit, uh, I don't know, like I have, I don't even know how to respond to that. Just thank you so, so much. Um, and since Yasmin spent that time hyping me up, I do just have to add that I would not be in the position that I'm in today if I had never met Yaz. She is actually the catalyst and the reason for why I decided to start speaking up in the first place. Um, after reading her book, I met her face-to-face -face at an event, well, a Zoom event, but face-to-face -face nonetheless, uh, back when I didn't even wear a mask. And she inspired me and encouraged me to speak up. And that's what led me to be having this interview today. So thank you, Yaz. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. My pleasure. Um, and now that you mentioned the mask, you reminded me that I should probably tell viewers that the reason why Aisha is wearing a mask is because of the fact that she's public and in, she is inundated with all sorts of threats, as you can imagine. Um, and so she wears the mask to keep herself anonymous and safe. And it's obviously an incredibly sad and you know disgusting state of affairs, but that's where we are. That's what criticism of Islam and support of ex-Muslims will get you. Um, so Aisha, let's start off by taking you back to your childhood. I want to ask you about growing up um, a little bit in South Africa, but mostly in Australia, right? Um, and mm -hmm. you read my book and um, you know that I talk about how I always felt like I never really fully fit in with the Muslim community and I never really fully fit in with the Canadian community. And I was just kind of, you know, somewhere in between. Um, and I'm wondering what your experience was like growing up in a Muslim, your Cape Malay. So in a Muslim community in a Western country, whether it be, you know, you can tell us a bit about what it was like in South Africa, if it was different than Australia or New Zealand or wherever it was that you spent your childhood. But tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up as a Muslim girl in the Western world. So um, I was born in South Africa. I left there when I was pretty young. So I guess um, during that time frame, I wasn't even thinking about whether or not I had a sense of belonging. You know, I was a kid and I was just kind of doing my thing and living my life. I wasn't really aware of where I fit in and where I didn't fit in just yet. Um, but when we left South Africa, 
and moved to the West. So before I came to Australia, we moved to New Zealand. Um, and if you don't know much about New Zealand, it's a very isolated part of the world, um, maybe one of the most isolated parts of the world. And back then, um, shortly after we moved, 9-11 happened and attitudes towards Muslims were not great. So I was actually the only Muslim girl at my school and um, there was a lot of vitriol towards me that came from my fellow students, that came from my teachers. Um, if I tried to raise those issues with my teachers, they would literally tell me that um, I deserved it, basically. Sorry, so Jim, trying I, to... How oh, old sorry, you go on. <laughs> at this point? No, I'm just wondering how old um, you were. Under 10 years old. So wow. uh, okay. it would have been... Yeah, I think I would have been or actually maybe about 10 years old or nine years old when that happened. Um, and yeah, teachers would, um, they would try to educate me about Islam back then and, you know, tell me it was dangerous and all that kind of thing. So I've sort of been on both sides of the fence. I've been the one who experienced that bigotry myself and is now being accused of perpetuating that bigotry. So it's an interesting space to exist in. Um, but definitely in terms of how that impacted my sense of belonging. Um, I was very detached from South Africa at that point. I didn't see it as home. And it was very difficult for me to find that sense of community in New Zealand as well, um, because the broader, uh, the broader people within society did not accept me as, as a New Zealander. You know, I was the dangerous Muslim girl or whatever you want to call it. Um, so after that, we moved to uh, Australia, where I've spent most of my life, and it was a pretty similar story over here. Um, and I guess I tried to fit in with my Muslim community. There's a very tight-knit South African Muslim community where I live, and they're a little bit odd. We don't really mix with, um, like, the other Muslims very much. Everyone is South African. Um, but I didn't really fit in there either because I would constantly be trying to defy these Islamic expectations of me that everyone in the community held. And it was kind of seen as a competition, especially among Muslim girls, you know, who can be the most religious and who's the most pious Muslim. And our parents would sort of be playing us off against each other in that space. And, you know, my parents didn't have much to boast about because I was a fierce uh, hijab refuser and would, you know, wear T-shirts, God forbid, and all this sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> I went through a period of, you know, like if you've ever been an ex-Muslim living the double life, you do the double outfit, um, you put your real outfit on and then you put your one on over that that you wear just to get out of the house. So, yeah, I didn't really fit in with my family, with my Muslim community, with my community at school because they saw me as an outsider. Um, and I guess it wasn't really until I discovered people who had been through the same experiences as me, um, like you, Yaz, that I found that I'm not alone um, and that I do exist within a group of people who, who share who share this odd, unique journey that we've been through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that because that was actually the main reason why I wrote the book was because I felt so alone, so isolated. And um, I'm really glad that I was able to reach you. Um, I just want to talk a little bit. I'm curious because... <sighs> I grew up in Canada. I was in hijab from the age of nine. So maybe Canada is just very different from Australia and New Zealand. Um, and you mentioned that you weren't in hijab. So what is it? I'm, 
I'm surprised that they were even identifying you as a Muslim. Well, I had the Muslim name, right? Like I have a very Ah, obvious Muslim name. Yeah. And I had the brown skin. They would Mm. tell me that I'm Indian because if you had brown skin and you were a foreigner, you were Indian. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And like I I would talk about it. I would talk about the Mm. fact that I was a Muslim. It was something that you're taught to be very proud of growing up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was kind of singled out because I couldn't participate in like the school sausage sizzle. You know, I could only eat halal. Right. Uh, and I would be fasting during Ramadan and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. even without hijab, um, people know, people mm-hmm. find out very quickly that you are a Muslim and I guess word kind of gets around. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's because Canada is so, we've always been hypersensitive about like diversity and inclusion and like overdoing it. Um, So I found that when, and I wrote about this in my book, I think, I don't know if I edited it out or not, but when I wore hijab, everybody was so nice to me. Huge smiles. (laughs) Good morning. I'm not racist. I love Muslim (laughs) women in hijab. Like it was just like, everybody was so animated. And when I took off my hijab and I sort of just blended in with everybody else, um, not as many people smiled to me randomly. (laughs) Um, People in stores didn't go out of their way to try and help me. Like that was my experience. So I guess it really depends where you are on the planet and and how people act. Um, I'm so, so sorry and, you know, heartbroken to hear that you had such a negative experience growing up. I know so many Aussies and so many Kiwis and they're just such wonderful people. I can't even, I can't, I can't even imagine. It's, it's so strange to me that they would be acting like that, you know? Um, But I go, of course, it's just the people that I know. I've never lived in Australia or in New Zealand. So it, you know, obviously with the greater population would be completely different. I think um, I'm really sorry uh, you went through that. Oh, thank you. Um, I think I was a little bit unlucky because when I lived in New Zealand, um, there wasn't a big Muslim population there at the time. And again, because it was right after 9-11, perceptions on Muslims were really changing and and veering, uh, steering towards a really negative stereotype. When I did move to Australia, there was, it was a little bit more of a mixed bag, like the social and political landscape was changing. People were kind of moving towards this idea of diversity. But then of course, when Westerners tried to be inclusive um, and respectful of diversity, that ended up looking like things like a teacher telling me that I can't break my fast, even if I feel sick, because it's my culture to fast. Um, So thank you to that teacher if you ever see this interview. (laughs) Oh, my God, that pisses me off. Yeah, I've heard so many stories of what you were talking about, the double life. So wearing your what clothes you want to wear and then having to wear the clothes that your family demand of you on top of it. And then when you get to school, you take off that outer layer. Um, in Canada, I've had many people tell me about their teachers and in fact, their principals even sometimes it gets escalated um, where they're told, yeah, you need to cover up or we're going to tell your parents on you because you're disrespecting your culture and you're disrespecting your religion. But this yeah. is the first time that I've heard it about Ramadan too. Like they're doing the work of the mullahs. Like they don't even, they are the fucking Sharia police in the Western yeah. world. Like how, 
how, how embarrassing, you know, like that's just, you should be ashamed of yourselves that you're acting like that. And I hope that that teacher somehow, you know, hears this, sees this, or any teacher that has ever done anything like this understands how vicious and insidious that is. I mean, people, people are living in countries where they are controlled completely by their societies, by their governments, by their law enforcement, and the West purports itself to be free. And then you're controlling us and telling us what to wear or what to eat. It's like, we got enough of that at home. When you're living in a Western country, at least you think you're going to get freedom when you walk out the door. But wow, <laughs> you've got the Sharia police, the Matawa, the besiege in your school. <laughs> Disgusting. Well, they, they genuinely think that they're helping you, right? Like if any kid, any kid from a non-Muslim background approaches their teacher and says, my parents won't let me eat or drink any water and I need to have some, um, that's child abuse. Okay, yeah. no question. Yeah. That's child oh. abuse. But you're from a Muslim background and you go and approach your teacher with that. Um, they deny you food and water because that's cultural inclusivity, right? <laughs> yep. Yep. And that that's, I mean, that's right there. You've just synthesized my book, right? How Western liberalism empower radical Islam. That's the whole crux of the one of my biggest issues was when I went to them for help and they basically said well that's your culture that's your that's your family but what you mm. just said there just you just hit the nail on the head it's like if if some other kid came up to you with blonde hair and blue eyes with their family having been in Australia for six generations and they said to you my parents won't let me drink water like can you just imagine saying to that child well then honey I'm sorry, but you're just going to have to sit there and remain parched. Like <laughs> it would never happen. But why do they think it's okay to do that to us? Like, are we lesser? Are we subhuman? Are we, le- you know, this, you know, this idea of, of one law for all democracy, you know, like all of that, just, they just throw it out the window when it comes to Muslims, all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 you get special privileges. Whatever your Allah wants is what we're going to do. And of course that can be expanded to even situations like Charlie Abdo, where you had people like Western liberals, pundits on television, educated people, you know, supposedly independent thinkers, intellectual people saying things like, well, they shouldn't have drawn those cartoons because it was insulting to Muslims after people were murdered over it. Like this is, this is how far things can go. But anyway, do you know what's insulting? Do you know what's insulting to Muslims though? Setting the expectation that if you show them a drawing, they are going to kill you. Right. That's insulting. They're not, (laughs) do we not hold, they're not animals. And when Mm -hmm. I'm sure when you and I, you know, um, when you were a Muslim, Yaz, that if you were shown a drawing like that, um, your first instinct was not going to be that you need to go out and behead someone. And the fact that that expectation is enforced upon our, our former community, who we know because we used to be a part of that community is Mm. so insulting and degrading and it really just is the epitome of the bigotry of low expectations absolutely 100 totally agree with you okay so i'm going to bring it back to you again um 
Talk to me about, so you're telling me you were always kind of a little troublemaker and fiercely refusing the hijab, which I mean, I so admire you for that because I did not, I mean, I was in my mid twenties before I finally had the courage to defy that. Um, But what was the point sort of when you started to question things because critical thinking is really discouraged. Like you're not, you're not allowed to think too deeply about the religion. Like you're, you're told to do things and you simply need to obey. Um, And, and that always made me, I always felt really uncomfortable with that. I always felt like irritated, agitated. Like I want to ask, I want to talk about this. And they just, you just were never allowed to talk about it. If you talked about, if you tried to question anything, you were demonized for it. It was the devil whispering in your ear and you, you almost, you, you fill yourself up with self-hate. If you just, if you even want to talk about one of these aspects that seem irrational or don't make sense or, or whatever. Um, So I'm wondering for you, when you were growing up, I know you were pushing against the expectations, but what was the point for you when you started to think, okay, hang on a minute, maybe this doesn't make sense. Maybe I'm, maybe I, maybe I'm finding myself being pulled in a river here with a school of fish pull, going in a direction that, um, you know, I want to, I want to pump the brakes on this. I think for me growing up, just because like as part of the person that I am, it was always this sort of one foot in one foot out scenario for me because when you're growing up a Muslim woman, the inequality within Islam is going to stand out for you right from the beginning. It's like, so I had two brothers. Okay. So <laughs> the fact that they could do this, this, and this, and I'm expected to cover my entire body, be shamed for not putting a cloth on my head, not allowed to go out past a certain time at night or all this kind of stuff that my brothers were allowed to do from the get go, from the get go, I could see that this is unfair, you know, because I'm the one on the end of that spectrum experiencing the restrictions. My brothers aren't experiencing that. I'm the one experiencing that. So that raised questions for me for for as long as I can remember, basically. Um, And then even as a kid, like I must have been really young, maybe seven, eight years old, I would ask really simple questions like, why doesn't the Quran talk about the dinosaurs? Um, you know, it's a fair question. We know we're taught in school, dinosaurs exist. You you would think that an all-knowing creator would make some mention of that in his final message to humanity. But even a question like that was was not okay. It was like, you don't get to question what Allah put in the Quran. (laughs) Okay, well, he he could have made it a bit more obvious that he was so all-knowing, but whatever. (laughs) And then, yeah, it just, it gets more and more obvious as you grow up as a Muslim woman that purity culture gets worse and worse and worse. It, it was at the point where like skinny jeans made me a whore or wearing shoes with a tiny little bit of a heel, like a boot, a closed boot with a heel. Nah, whore, can't do that. Every inch of my body could be covered in fabric. And if it was too tight or showed a little bit of my shape, whore, not good enough. And it doesn't, it doesn't take much to question that and to realize that something's not right here. So I kind of punished myself for not being able to accept, you know, what Allah was teaching me. I punished myself for having these doubts. 
And I was, I felt like I was stuck. I felt like I was being pulled in two directions growing up my entire life. But then when I got to the end of high school and the beginning of university, and I really started to be taught explicitly how to think critically, because there is a big emphasis on that in the Australian education system, especially because of the subject that I majored in at university, right? I was majoring in law. You have to think so, so critically. I did a unit at university on philosophy, which was called God, Mind and Knowledge. I had to write an essay arguing for the existence of God. And I realized that I I couldn't. (laughs) I wanted to write an essay for the other side because that made more sense. Um, That's when the big questions started to really come through, you know, um, not just stuff about morality, right? Because morality felt like it was easier for me to just say, okay, well, maybe I just don't understand. You know, maybe I just have to put my trust in Allah. But when it came to things like questioning the science, the obvious, blatant scientific inconsistencies in the Quran, in the Hadith, that was the tipping point for me because I couldn't, I couldn't argue with that. You know, um, what's the evidence for the moon being split? Oh, there isn't any. I literally cannot argue this point anymore. There is no evidence to support this whatsoever. The the hadith is teaching me that I if a fly lands on my drink, I should dip it in there because it's gonna cure disease and I should drink camel urine because that's gonna be good for me too. It just gets to a point where you realize, wow, this is bullshit. This is actually bullshit. I've been deceived my entire life to believe in something that is so obviously false. And that I think around the age of 20, when I realized that no matter how much research I did, I could not reason and justify and find evidence for what was being taught to me in this religion. That's when I realized I don't have control over this anymore. I just genuinely don't believe it. And that was it. Yeah. Yeah. So you you find out it was all a lie. And then for me, that was closely followed by anger that I'd spent so much time scared, absolutely terrified of the figment of a goat herder's imagination from 1400 years ago. I mean, it it, is so infuriating that you spent so much of your life paralyzed with fear over somebody's fever dream, you know, like it's just, it's so Uh, that that anger took a long time for me to get over like I just what a waste what a waste of my life um you did mention at some point in there that you punished yourself what did you mean by that I tried to restore my iman right I tried to um make sure that I was praying as much as I possibly can spending as much time as I can reading Quran and trying to regain my sense of connection with Allah and with my religion I I found an old diary recently from when I was maybe 12 or 13 where I wrote down my goals things that I want to improve on in the new year and number one was be a better Muslim because Mm. I, I had convinced myself that if I don't do that, what is the point of my entire life? I'm just going to die and and go to hell. Right. And no one wants to do that. The the Mm -hmm. depiction of hell in Islam is grueling and graphic Mm -hmm. and not just hell, but torture in the grave. Mm -hmm. So it's fear. Um, It was that fear and that sense of, you know, wanting to do the right thing and avoid those sorts of punishments that, caused me to punish myself and say, you know, you've been blessed into being born into the one true religion and here you are 
questioning why you have to wear a cloth on your head. What is wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I I I told myself at one point, just pretend that life is a video game. It's just temporary. Just do all the stuff that the religion is teaching you, no matter how hard it is. And then in the end, when you finally die, it'll all be worth it. Just pretend mm-hmm. it's not real. And that way you can accept the fact that you have to do all these things you don't agree with and that you hate. So yeah, it was always that push and pull until finally it's like the rope just snapped and I was free. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You just described how I lived and I think I am almost positive most Muslim people live, which is just, you have to shut it down. Like I remember my watching my sister actively do that, like talking to her about it and seeing her making the decision to, to shut herself down because caring just hurts. It's just tiresome. Why get mm. upset? Why try to push for freedom? You're not going to attain it anyway. And I've got to that point too, when um, when that judge threw me back with my family, I got to that point, exactly same thing. It's like, well, you got to stop struggling. You just submit as per the definition of the word Islam. You, you just submit. And once you submit and let the, you know, the water drown you and overtake you and you no longer are struggling and you're no longer feeling, then you're at peace, <laughs> right? That's, that's, that's what exactly they want it. of us. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, so now I want to talk about, so you got to the point where the rope snapped. How did the, how did you, you know, what, what, what were the steps that you took at this point? Because you're part of a Muslim family, you know, that they're not going to accept you saying, I want out. Um, you know, how did you, how did, how did that look like in your life? How did that, how did your family react? You know, what was that situation? So before I, before I even realized that, you know, I'm an ex-Muslim and that I'm an apostate and someone who has left Islam, I was already planning to gain financial independence and get away from my family because regardless of whether I was staying a Muslim or not, I was not going to stay in that restrictive situation, that controlling abusive situation any longer. So by the time I reached 20, I was one year off right towards the end of completing my master's degree. And I had picked a job that I knew would guarantee instant job security as soon as I graduated, which it did. That was great. So um, I left home um, before I told my parents that I'd left Islam because I I was too scared and I didn't want to lose them, which I knew was going to be the outcome. But the fact that I was leaving home as an unmarried a Muslim woman who was still refusing to wear the hijab and to do all the things that my parents wanted me to do. That was enough for them to stop talking to me and cut me off. They were so disgusted that I had gained this level of independence. And the last thing my mother said to me that day was, we will never be proud of anything that you do unless you put a hijab on your head. And I said to her, then I will never make you proud because I have done things in my life now that I'm proud of. And this is what I want to do with my life. I don't think I care what makes you proud anymore because that's not me. I don't fit into your weird box, right? Mm. Um, 
And that conversation did not go down well, but I left. I left that day and I started my life with my uh, atheist partner, Astaghfirullah. He moved in with me. Um, he was still studying at the time. So I supported both of us financially for a while. And it was great. Like being the breadwinner as a woman after living through that pretty mm-hmm. awesome way to, I don't yeah. know, pretty good feeling. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that was just, that was a long time ago. We've sort of evened out the playing field now. He needed a bit of time to do his thing. Um, but yeah, I, I left it all behind and it wasn't until a few years after I left home that I finally decided I'm going to tell them. Mm. And it's funny because it was shortly after I discovered you and I was so inspired and relieved to know, okay, other people are doing this. Other people can do this. So I can do it. I'm I'm ready now. And Mm -hmm. I guess I was kind of in that angry phase, you know, Um, the, well, I've been lied to my whole life. I'm tired of putting up this this charade I just want to be who I actually am and I felt like I needed to rip that band-aid off and I did it in the worst way possible Yaz I made a Facebook post because I was still they didn't want I couldn't go to the house they hadn't Mm. seen them in so long they didn't want to see me and it was dangerous right there was that potential danger so I put it on Facebook and oh my god shit hit the fan like family members in South Africa that I had not talked to in years, decades even, um, were immediately sending me messages and how dare you say that you don't agree with the Quran and messaging my mother and abusing my mother and how could you raise this daughter? And it was a shit show. My parents did not know how to respond. They didn't even bring it up with me. I guess they thought maybe if we don't talk about it, it'll go away or something. But when they realized that it wasn't going away, we had to have the discussion of you are no longer our daughter. Um, we cannot have a daughter that isn't a Muslim. You know, you're, it's worse than if you're converted to Christianity or something like that. You don't believe in any God, which was the biggest shock to them. I don't think they ever expected me to come out and say, I don't believe in any religion. I don't even believe in a creator. That was too much. Um And I know that we shouldn't be, you know, it's not that I make excuses for them, but because I have had that same mindset at at one point in my life, I understand. I understand that they they thought that they fucked up. They thought Mm -hmm. that I was going to go to hell and maybe now they were going to go to hell and I'd ruined it for them because raising a good Muslim daughter, Allah gives you so much reward for that right? There's so much emphasis on how much reward you get for raising that good Muslim daughter. And I didn't fulfill that expectation. So that relationship crumbled, but I'm lucky because my my Muslim sister and my brother came around and we have a great relationship. So there's that. Oh, that's good. So you got a younger sister afterwards because you said before that you grew up with two brothers. Uh, yeah. Older brother, and then mm-hmm. older sister and then younger brother. So the second brother came after me, mm-hmm. um, but he was there. Uh, he was there when we lived. He was born in New Zealand. And then as I grew up in Australia, I had the two brothers, the one older, the one younger. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister's still a Muslim. So at first we, we could, she just couldn't take it. 
she, it was a shock to her. I don't know. And she felt that I was punishing my parents, that I was being unfair to the family and, you know, putting my parents in a position where they were now faced with backlash from the community. And I kind of understood where she was coming from because it's not like I approached the situation in the best way possible, but it happened and and I had to, you know, I had to move forward from that and we all had to move forward from that. But I guess, yeah, I let her know that my door was open, that I wasn't shutting that door to her or my parents and that if they ever changed their mind, I would happily welcome them back. And my sister took her like maybe a, a week or two. So, yeah, she she knew. She knew that she valued our bond and what we had as siblings more than she did um, a religion, which was pretty nice. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Very, very rare. Incredibly rare. Yeah. So that's. That's great of her. So I'm constantly getting messages from women, sometimes men, often gay men and women who are right at that cusp. They're right on that precipice where they, they know everything just like you and I, they have the exact same feelings of, of, of realizing this is complete, you know, this is just uh, lunacy and I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore, but they're paralyzed with fear because of their family connection. They don't want to lose their family. They don't want to lose their community. They don't want to lose their friends. They don't want to be, you know, the way we were just severed from everything that you've ever known your whole life. And so they kind of live in that purgatory, not being able to move forward. Um, I guess I'm asking you because I want the answer to this, really. I I want to express to these people that write to me, but it's kind of like, how are they ever going to hear me? I want to express to them that as hard as it is, as much as it hurts, as difficult as it will be, your freedom, every drop of your freedom will be worth it. But how do you say that to somebody? Because like you just described to us an incredibly heart-wrenching situation. It was difficult on everybody in your family. So many people that you love are being hurt. Uh, people that you haven't even heard from in so long are coming out of the woodwork to attack you. Like it was, it's a very negative experience. How do you convey to somebody that going through that difficulty, when you come out the other side, it'll be worth it. You know, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in, I'm pretty sure you've been in that situation where people have sent you these messages, asking you that same question. I try to liken it to Dave Rubin, who um, is a really good friend of mine. And he talked about how during the day he would, because he was a comedian, a stand-up comedian during the day, not the day, but the night, whatever, in the bars, he'd tell homophobic jokes on stage And then he would go home with some guy from the bar. (laughs) And so he was really living this, you know, completely double life. And then he talked about how difficult it was to finally be open. But as difficult as it was for him, all of the freedom that came with it was totally worth it. And of course, for us, it's so different because he was never really, you know, he's, he's in LA. So of course it was hard. It was the nineties, you know, people, there were still a lot of homophobia. Um, 
but it's different for Muslims. <laughs> you know, he, he <laughs> we're at a different level. Nobody's trying to kill him. Um, so I'm just wondering, what do you what do you say to these people who write to you when they're on that cusp? Because I want to somehow encourage them, like push them. <laughs> but at the same time, it's scary because they could, you know, their families could kill them. Honor violence and honor killings is a real risk. Um, so I don't know. I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Okay, so this is the one thing that I will tell every single person who approaches me in that situation. And this is what I used to tell clients um, at Free Hearts, Free Minds who are in Muslim majority countries yeah. because they're going through that rage, they have that passion and you know they want to be activists and put themselves out there. The one thing I say to them is your safety is your number one priority. Your safety comes before everything else if you are going to compromise your safety and put yourself at risk by telling your family or telling your community then it's not the right time to do it yet it doesn't mean that you're going to live this life forever it doesn't mean that that opportunity won't come but you don't put yourself in that situation until you know that you're going to get out of it safely that's why i waited until i was qualified employed had my own house before I told them. And it's not just the practical side of things. You need to emotionally prepare yourself for that experience. You need to consider what the worst possible outcome could be. And then you need to spend time working through exactly how you're going to manage that. And until you are at that point, you are not ready to go through that experience and you are going to put unnecessary stress on yourself. So this is a weird analogy that I was just thinking of as I heard you talking, but you could think of it as like a surgery, right? How freaking complicated is a surgery? Someone is going in there, cutting you up, doing all kinds of crazy things to you internally. And then there's this huge recovery period, sometimes for, you know, such a long time. But why are you getting that surgery in the first place? Because it's oh, good for you. Such a good analogy. I love it. I know. It. <laughs> I just came up with it. I'm so, so proud. Good. Yeah. And like, okay, the healing process is going to be so hard. Maybe there's even a rehabilitation process, but you are yeah. doing that because it is for your own good. You're doing it for yeah. the greater good of yourself and you will come out of that healthier and stronger and happier. And that is what it is like. But you wouldn't go and get that surgery. You wouldn't go and get that surgery, uh, I don't know, in the middle of a COVID pandemic where, mm. you know, surgeries were shut down because it wasn't safe to get it yet. You have yeah. to wait. You have find the right time and then you do it when you feel ready to do it and that's the advice that I give those people oh I love that so much I'm so glad I asked you that question that is so Thank beautiful <laughs> <laughs> and when you were talking actually I remembered that I got an email from somebody who told me when I was in sessions with Aisha she said to me oh my god <laughs> she said to me you're not going to be in this moment forever and I didn't believe her but she said you're not going to be like this forever and she's writing to me now from a safe country and she's like Aisha was right I did I believed her even though I didn't believe her you know and it did and and she's right and it's not like that anymore and oh my god so yeah it's like these are not just 
you're not just talking about hypothetic scenarios. Like you actually help people in real life. Um, so I know I've gone over time and I, and I have to open it up to the rest of the group. But before we do, I just want to talk a little bit about free hearts, free minds. I know how much you mean to me and how much you mean to our clients. But I want to ask you how much what free hearts, free minds means to you. Um, you know, it obviously it's a it's a it's taking all of your professional background, but it's also your personal life as well. And it's a combination of those two things. Um, and I, I just want you to talk a little bit about what that work means to you and how much it fulfills you or whatever it is that you want to share. So first of all, don't even worry about going over time because I would rather continue this conversation than do my work, which is what I had to do. Like, fuck my work. I so don't want to do that right now. <laughs> free Hearts, Free Minds is my passion. It is where my heart and soul sits. It is what I always wanted to be able to do but had absolutely no idea how to get there. I had no idea and then when I read your book and I read that you had created the organization that I'd always envisioned, it's part of the reason why I felt so inspired. I felt like we can do this. This is a thing that we can do and we can rewrite the future and rewrite what this experience of leaving Islam can look like for future generations. And we can make it so that other people out there don't have to go through that lonely isolating experience that you and I had to go through, at least not alone ever again, right? Never, ever again, because we have changed this landscape for everyone that comes after us. And the work that I do with this organization, it's not, I don't see it as a job. I see it as a necessity, not just for our clients, not just for I don't know the vision that we're trying to work towards, but for the betterment of humanity, for the world, right? Because if we don't do this, no one else is going to. And that is why so much of my passion sits with our organization. <sighs> and that is why I am so incredibly grateful to have you as the clinical director, because where, where, where am I getting, you know, I, I'm so incredibly grateful, so incredibly blessed to have somebody who is, like you said, it's not a job, it's a passion, like it's, it's where your heart and soul sits. I mean, I'm, that's exactly, you described it for me as well. And so for both of us to be working in this organization, feeling that way, and then having Sama and Jessica as well, like, it's just, it's, it's just such a, it's such a fulfilling, rewarding experience to be a part of. 100%. All right, everyone. Um, so please uh, just unmute yourselves. We've got a small group today because it's like 4 a.m. in Vancouver or something right now. So we had a lot of people messaging me saying, I think you got the time wrong. Um, so this is awesome. I'm glad to see you guys here. David, I know you're in South Africa, right? So time is like normal for you. Lois, aren't you in Calgary? What time is it for you? It's three o'clock a.m. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> 
That is true, true love of the forgotten feminists <laughs> and of Aisha Muhammad. That's amazing. I thank you so it's much. It's worth it. Oh, oh so I'm glad you think that. Thank you. <laughs> and what about you, Erkan? Where are you? You're in the UK, so you're at a normal yeah. time. Too. Yeah. Yeah. It was, well, it's quarter to nine now in the morning. Ah, uh, oh, so you did have to get up bright and early. Have an yeah. extra shot of espresso in your coffee. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wouldn't miss it. Yeah. Oh. Awesome. Um, and so if anybody has any questions or um, comments <clears throat> or anything like that, please feel free to jump in. Oh, go ahead, Erkan. Uh, oh, go ahead, Erkan. Okay, thanks. Well, I, I well, first of all, thanks, Aisha, for you know, another fascinating, really interesting talk. Um obviously a really bright, intelligent, amazing young person. And uh, the work that you do with Yas is really important, I think. Um, so congratulations on that. And then um, what I've often thought a lot about, you know, the Muslim community in the UK, for example, when I, you know, even when I walk past people on the street and maybe there's a young man or a young, especially a young woman, because they're kind of more, Kind of trapped if you like and you wonder to what extent to what extent how many muslims are there out there who would love to make a connection with others and maybe feel that they can't for whatever reason whether it's hostility on one side or whether it's you know restrictions on the other like you know don't mix with the uh, <laughs> don't mix with the kufar whatever and um, um, you know and this guy so it makes you wonder how many Others feel in the middle, you know, in the way that Yaz did and the way that you did. Um, and maybe they can't make a connection for whatever reason. So that's the first thing. It's more of a comment. Your talk made me think about that. And um, the other thing, um, I often wonder about this, this question about Western liberals that Yaz also turns to quite often. And I wonder about um, to what extent do you think that is like uh, kind of like people being like well-meaning or to what extent is it kind of an institutional thing because we know the power of like pressure professional kind of because of the woke movement I mean especially we know the power uh, particularly that kind of thing I mean it's even made doctors and professionals kind of change you know change their kind of stance that that even even though they know better you know they still do things like they don't question things like, you know, girls chopping off parts of their body and this kind of thing. So these kinds of pressures can be really intense on, on, on people. And I wonder, to what extent is it, it, could it just be one of those kind of psychological phenomena, you know, like a spiral of silence where everybody just thinks that everybody else thinks the same way, but nobody really thinks that way, you know? Like, it's just assumed that this is what you do with Muslims, they, you know, it, to what extent, so um, my question is, to what extent is it an institutional thing and to what extent is it just a kind of individual, well-meaning sort of thing? What, what do you think? Um, look, thank you so much, first of all, for your kind words at the beginning. I really, really appreciate that. It means so much to me when I can see that my message is coming across and actually being understood by people who come from, you know, a very different background uh, to me. That really means something. So thank you so much for that. Um, you spoke about, you know, how many Muslims do we think might be out there experiencing experiencing that same sort of push-pull and wanting to make that connection. Unfortunately, I don't think we can ever give an exact um, estimation of that because so many of them, 
probably don't even want to admit to themselves that that is what they are going through. But as someone who was born and raised a Muslim, especially in the West, I, I would not hesitate to wager that at least 98% of Muslims out there at one point, at one point in their life, have wanted to make that connection. But there are so many factors holding them back, like the guilt, the pressure, the, um, you know, God's will, which <laughs> so many things, so many things that are keeping them and holding them back from even being able to admit it to themselves. So I guess my answer to that would be, I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot, but I don't know if we'll ever know how many, right? In terms of, um, yeah, in terms of the woke movement and the liberals and, you know, how much of that is institutionalized, again, there are so many factors at play here. One of the big ones is that there is this huge shift worldwide towards being seen as uh, valuing social justice and valuing cultural diversity and all of this kind of stuff. But the way that we're actually defining what that is and what that looks like has completely gone wayward, right? It is just veered off the track of what liberalism is supposed to look like. And there is so much else at play here, like cancel culture, um, technological advancements with the internet and people are on social media, they're on Twitter, things spread like wildfire. It is so easy for a person to say one thing, whether they meant it or not, whether they were in the wrong or not, for that to then spread uh, and for that pressure to be magnified to the point where they feel like they have to submit, that is playing into it so, so significantly. Um, so again, it, it's coming from so many different angles. And I think in the West, especially, people convince themselves that, you know, th that they're doing the right thing, that by standing by uh, the will of Muslims and condemning things like Charlie Hebdo uh, is the right thing to do. And there's a sense of guilt, I think, especially after 9-11 and, uh, you know, we can't deny that anti-Muslim bigotry exists, okay? We, we, we see issues like incidents like what happened in Christchurch. It exists, it's there. And it makes people feel guilty and it makes them ask themselves, what am I doing wrong and what do I need to do to avoid adding to this? And unfortunately, when they're not listening to both sides of the story, Muslims and people like me and Yaz, they're not getting the full picture and they're making the wrong decision as to what social justice is supposed to look like. I completely agree. I mean, I have I've thought a lot about this. I mean, because I'm originally trained in sociology, so I know a lot about the, the whole kind of the, the back catalogue, if you will, of kind of Jacques Derrida, uh, Michel Foucault, um, you know, the post-structuralist, the postmodernist writers and this, this, this the deconstructionists and the, and the, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the kind of elevation of nonsense and the mm -hmm. degradation of science and this kind of thing. They've rejected logic, they've rejected reason, um, the postmodernists and this kind of thing. So all of this plays into it. And a lot of the heavy lifting has been done by people in the universities. A lot of the heavy lifting for things like blasphemy laws, which will soon be upon us all, you know? I mean, we won't need to ask, we won't need to ask to what extent religion is, 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 is you know, it, imposing on our rights because we've already done a lot of the hard work for that to, I think, 
you know, for that to take place. Anyway, but yeah, thanks for the thanks for the, uh, the response. Yeah. No worries, Morris. Thank you for the question. It's great. Lois? Yeah, I I want to hear more about the feelings of well, you hit a chord when you were talking about the sense of not belonging. And well, as Yasmin knows, I was raised in a a very conservative fundamentalist Protestant denomination. And one of the emphases was, you know, be in the world, but not of the world. And, you know, you have to go out there and you have to go to school and all this, but you don't belong. You're not a part of that world. And for other reasons, I didn't feel like a part of the church world either. Um, and I developed that extremely intense feeling of, not belonging anywhere. And I described it as sort of being an observer of the world, but not a participant. And what happened was, it was years and years after I had deconverted, completely left my old life and started a new life, that I still couldn't shake that feeling of not belonging. And I just wonder about all of those feelings that are embedded in you with the beliefs and the religion and everything else of getting rid of those feelings. They seem to hang around. I used to say, you know, getting it from the head level to the gut level, you know, in your head, but you still feel something different. And I was wondering if you could talk about that and getting rid of those feelings. Yeah, absolutely. Look, Lewis, I guess I just want to start by saying that I am so sorry that you relate so much to experiences like Yasmin and I. It's always, I guess, a little bit bittersweet when we find each other because the reason we ended up here is because we had to go through, yeah. go through such an arduous journey. But regardless, I am glad that, that we got where we are and that we're having this discussion because it means that other people moving forward don't have to meet in the same way, I hope. Um, in terms of dealing with those feelings, look, I, I'm not going to lie to you, sometimes... I don't know who the hell I am. Sometimes that feeling will hit me like a ton of bricks and it overwhelms me and I can't take it because even though I've now found my own family with my partner's parents who proudly tell everyone that I'm their daughter um, and have accepted me wholeheartedly for the person I actually am, I can't help but feel like you just, you have no idea what I went through to get to this point, you know, that they are so far removed from who I am and the experiences that made me who I am. And so religious deconstruction um, is always going to be an ongoing journey. It's always going to be an ongoing process for us. But what I tell myself and what really helps me to combat and overcome that, that sense of, of, of being completely lost is that I, I decide my place in this world. I am the only person in this world who decides who I am, who I fit in with, and what my purpose is. No one else out there gets to do that for me. We are the only ones, Lewis, that get to make that decision for ourselves. And the more that we can accept and really embrace that understanding, the less that we start to feel like we don't belong and we don't know who we are. Because at the end of the day, we determine that. And moving forward, we will determine that and show others that they can do the exact same thing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so we have a question that's just in the chat because Farah doesn't want to turn on her camera or 
share her voice. Um, she said that she doesn't have any questions. She's just amazed by your work at the community and the safe space that we're providing is invaluable. Thank you for this family. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for being part of it. I'm glad that we have this family and that we know now that ex-Muslims don't ever have to be alone in this world again. And neither does anyone from a former fundamentalist upbringing because we are all in this together. That's a beautiful message. Thank you, Farah. When Lois and, and Aisha were talking now about belonging, um, it just hits us so deeply at our cores because we're social animals. Like we're just, I feel every word of what you guys are saying. Like I feel the weight of it. It's been 20 years since I've identified as Muslim, you know, like it's, it's, it, 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 what you said about it being an ongoing journey, like this overcoming religious trauma, like you're so right. And it feels like uh, I was so frustrated for so long because I always thought that there would reach a point where it wouldn't matter anymore. And the fact that I was disowned and discarded by my family wouldn't matter anymore. And the fact that my kids don't have a grandmother wouldn't matter anymore. You know what I mean? But it doesn't, You'd I, I, I kind of had to make peace with the with the understanding that it's like grief. It's like grief. Grief doesn't ever go away. You just have to make, you have to find a place where you can continue living with the grief. Yeah. Um, and I find that this sort of religious trauma, sense of belonging, all that kind of stuff, everything that you said, Aisha, I totally agree with. You just have to, you just have to find your place in that space. It's so, it's sad, um, but like Farah was saying, we have created a new family. I know it's not, the thing is having that cult that you were living in Lois or that Aisha and I were living in, like having that, men, that group mentality that demands of you, that conditional love they have of you, that's not a good thing, even though it felt comfortable for us on a, on a, like an, on an animalistic lizard brain level, we liked it. It felt good. It felt safe. It's toxic, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So this family that we've created here of like true inclusion where, you know, it's, it's, it's truly just accepting people where they are and who they are. And, and, and trying to um, support each other and heal together without making any demands, without yes. saying you need to believe X, Y, Z, or you're not one of us. Um, that, that's truly healthy. Um, Whenever they say that religion does a good job of community, I say, no, it doesn't. Because, oh, you're part of us, you're one of us, you belong until yes. you say one wrong word. Yes. And the strings attached aren't worth it. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, Aisha was disowned for daring to move out on her own and be an independent woman. I was disowned for daring to remove a cloth off my head. I mean, it's just, it, it just seems like such ridiculous reasons to sever ties with your family and, and your community and your friends. Like it, it's truly an abusive relationship when they say, I will love you if... Mm -hmm. Right. 
Um, Nomi, I want to give you an opportunity to chat if you want to. I know you're kind of hiding from the camera, <laughs> but just in case there's something that you wanted to, to say to, to Aisha, I want to make sure that I give you the opportunity. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, okay. Hello there. Wow. This is exciting for the first time I'm uh, talking on Yasmin. <laughs> well, uh, I would like to uh, congratulate you guys. Uh, uh, seriously, I mean, I'm, I'm so proud of you. I'm, uh, I'm super proud of you. And I think this is kind of a, it's like a tsunami of uh, freedom fighters. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you for joining us. I love us. you guys. <laughs> Yeah, we Thank love you, you so too. Much. Thank you. Um, and Aisha, I just wanted to make sure that I give you an opportunity to say anything that you wanted to say before we wrap up. Was there anything that uh, you wanted to talk about that I didn't mention or I didn't ask you about? Um, I guess I just wanted to add another analogy because I am on fire with these during this conversation <laughs> for some reason. Um, but that sense of toxic community, you know, regardless of your religion, is just an example of people trying to shove you inside a box. They are saying, this is your life. You exist in here. You step out of there and you are nobody anymore. But people like Yaz, myself, you, Lewis, as well, we are setting the standard that there is a life outside that box. And we are the ones designing these roads to find each other outside that box and create our own new community that doesn't exist between a set of boundaries like religion tries to expect of us. And how freaking awesome is that? We get to live a life that is on our own terms and conditions and no one else's. And we get to connect with people who will love and accept us for who we truly are instead of what some imaginary person in the sky is demanding of us so i think that we are pretty fucking awesome <laughs> yes <laughs> that's a what a note to end on thank you so much aisha um and thank you so much everyone extra special thank you to lois for uh joining us at 3 a.m um and yeah again aisha you're amazing i love you i adore you i worship you and uh, you know that. And everybody, thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you at the next Forgotten Feminists. Excellent. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.